Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast. I'm Dr. Brad Reed. Today is Thursday, May 25th, 2023. Tonight, we're going to be talking about neurodiversity. And as is my approach, I'm going to talk a little bit, of course, about the diagnostics of neurodiversity, about what's included in neurodiversity. But really, uh, my perspective is, is practical, how to deal with somebody who, who processes information and emotions and social relationships different than you. How do you do that? And, and where does it, where, where, where can you meet them in that process? I will tell you that some of my most recent information on this topic comes from my son, my third child, who is neurodiverse, who, who has, uh, who qualifies for the, uh, being on the autism spectrum disorder. And it's interesting because when he was home last summer, I've told this story to a few people in smaller settings than this, but when he was home last summer and we were talking about it, a couple of things came up. First of all, throughout his, his childhood, he's 21 now and in college, throughout his childhood, we didn't see it. Even though there were, there were features that, that now looking back seem obvious to us and I've been educated in this area, I didn't see it. And really what I want to confess to tonight is I didn't want to see it. I also had some fears, of course, like many parents share, that to label somebody with, with a diagnosis or, or, in this case, a, a, a specific uh, diagnosis in the mental health manual, to do something that like that might limit my child, uh, might make them feel like they have to fit into a box in that process. So we were in denial about it, just like every parent who doesn't have the, the education that I have. So I, I want to confess to that this evening. But as I was describing it to my son, he shared two things with me. Number one he shared is folks on the spectrum. And that's, that's really what I'm going to be focusing on tonight, although I'll mention other issues around neurodiversity. Um, folks on the spectrum don't necessarily think that all of their attributes and characteristics are deficits. I, I shared this the other night when I was discussing and, and talking about the folks that are hearing impaired, folks that can't hear, that are deaf that it's not necessarily something that they think about fixing. So, so from the get-go, we have to change our paradigm. And here's what really blew my mind. My son said to me, and, and I told him, the reason I think, the, the reason I justified at the time not putting you in that category was I saw features and characteristics that you had that didn't fit with the typical profile. And that kind of leads into this next discussion, this next part of the discussion, which really hit me like a ton of bricks. My son said to me, you know, Dad, you have some spectrum traits. And of course, I was defensive at the outset. And I started to go through, just like I had with my son, I started to go through characteristics of myself that, that didn't fit with somebody on the spectrum, with somebody on, uh, with autism spectrum dis- disorder. But as I opened up my heart a little bit more and he described some of my characteristics, I started to see, yeah, that makes sense. I do have some features like that. And in that context, through that lens, a lot more people have features and characteristics of, of the spectrum disorder than, than I had imagined or, or than I was thinking. And he said to me, and this is where the scatter plot comes up, the one that I have on the screen for you that are watching live. He said, we don't think of it as a continuum or a, a spectrum in the sense of a, of a clear straight line. On the left side of my screen, if you're watching live or if you're watching on our YouTube channel, you'll see a scatter plot. 
of various data points. It's generic, of course. And then you'll see this line that runs through the various dots, that, that some of which are far off of that, that line, that, that continuum, that, that graph. And what a scatter plot reveals to us is not everybody fits in, in one discrete or distinct category. I'm going to be teaching a class tomorrow on, on attachment-based therapy, which is our approach, which is really the, 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 the label for the way that I think about life. And one of the things that I'm going to talk about that I want to, that I want to borrow from tonight is this idea that um, my therapist, my current therapist of 24 years, also sees my wife. And my wife has been seeing her for 25 years. My wife actually was the one that started with her. I met her professionally, but then my wife started seeing her in psychotherapy. And two of my adult children. And sometimes when we compare notes about our sessions with Jamie, it's fascinating. I've shared this with Jamie. That, that the way that one of my children will... will describe the interactions with Jamie, the, the, thing that's, the things that she says and does in session is nothing like the way that Jamie shows up with me. And as we got more into it, we, we really came to the conclusion that we should write a book someday called Four Therapists, but it's really just one therapist. And when you have an attachment-based approach, somebody asked me just this week this question. They said, do you find yourself varying your approach from client to client as much as Jamie does? And I said... In a sense, in a real sense, Jamie doesn't vary her approach. It's the same approach with all four of us. Because when you're client-centered, when you're focusing on the needs of the client and you're, you're basically feeding back to them, reflecting back to them what they're asking for, how they're showing up, what they're feeling, it can look very different. And that's why the, the same therapist can have four different approaches on the surface, on the superficial level, but at the deeper level, the real difference is that she's seeing all of us as different people in different parts of our life. Now, why do I tell that story about Jamie and my psychology, my therapy? Is because tonight really is going to be about understanding otherness. It doesn't matter. It's the same exact education when we talk about addiction or depression or anxiety. We talk about people with, with genetic organic differences, a different way of processing and, and being in the world. And, and when we understand that it's not a, a moral failing, these disorders, that's a phrase specifically from the addiction field. It's not a moral failing, but it's just a genetic predisposition that interacting with the, 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 the surroundings, the environment, the context, whatever traumas and resources are present, it shows up in this way. What they're trying to tell us and teach, this, teach us about all of these different disorders is that everybody's different. And because, I wrote this down tonight, it's, it's, almost a, a, it's almost inaccurate to talk about neurodiversity and, or neurodivergent and neurotypical. Because there's really no way of talking about neuro, neurologically typical. You're just talking about a numbers game that most people think in these ways. But even that description is so broad. Many people who do not have an autism diagnosis have autistic traits. That's what I've been saying. So there is no clear distribution 
separating people with and without autism. In reality, there are not two distinct populations, one neurotypical and one neurodivergent. Neurotypical, this is the part that I wrote down, is a dubious construct because there's nobody who could be considered truly neurotypical. And there's no such standard for the human brain. In a fundamental sense, and I think this way about my four children, one of whom qualifies for the autism spectrum disorder according to the diagnostic manual. My goal, my, 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 my thought about them, my relationship with them is to figure out how to support each one of them and where they need to go. You know, parents will say to us so often, I've heard this hundreds of times, it worked for my other child. My parenting style seemed to work for them. They, they don't have the symptoms or the issues that this child in treatment has. And part of what they're trying to do is alleviate the guilt and shame they feel for having potentially failed or made a mistake, right? That's the ego that you're hearing. But part of what they're also inadvertently confessing is this idea that no two people are the same. And in fact, the same person is not the same person over time. They're not the same person they were at 5 or 14 or 24. When parents say to me, I want my old child back, my response is, that's impossible. That child is gone. I, I, I know what you're saying. You want some of the old affection and connection. Some of the communication uh, uh, back the way that it was before. But, but in reality, you'll have something different. And, and in many cases, bigger and better than it was before. So tonight's conversation is about understanding. I'm going to talk about the diagnosis. I'm going to talk about neurodiversity and neurodivergent. But really, it's about understanding that it's our job to understand that fundamentally, fundamentally, each child, each human being, each other is different. Like I said, researchers have sometimes been too ready to interpret differences as deficits. The only reason they're deficit, they're, they're deficit it's like a left-handed person. It would be the equivalent of calling a, a left-handed person having a disorder. Even though the way that we write in this country, left to right, the way that our, that our desks are designed, the way that the majority of, of scissors are designed, you could walk up to a drum set in a music store. It's going to be set up most likely for a right-handed player. Some of you might know that Jimi Hendrix actually played a right-handed guitar because early on in his career, it was easier to get a hold of. So he played a, a, a right-handed guitar. You just flipped it upside down. The, the, it's just as, as inaccurate to call somebody left-handed as having a, uh, um, a disability as it is somebody who's neurodivergent in many ways. One of the things my son says, not only do we not have deficits, but we actually have gifts in areas that people that are, are neurologically typical don't have. And my son is, is one example of that. His academic prowess is off the charts. His ability to retain information is, is, is incredible. We call him when, when he's home. He doesn't live here anymore. He's moved away to college for good. We, 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 we call him our human Google because his ability to retain information from all of his years of school is phenomenal. His focus on certain tasks is way beyond the capacity of others in the family. Again, I'm going to read this quote and then I'm going to get more into the neuro, neurodiverse language. 
But this is really what I'm talking about. And it's one of my favorite quotes. And you, if you've listened a lot or you've read my books, you've seen this quote before because I share it a lot. It's from Mahatma Gandhi. He says, a coward is incapable of exhibiting love. It is the prerogative of the brave. Projection, fusion, going home is easy. Loving another's otherness is heroic. If we really love the other as other, we have heroically taken on the responsibility for our own individuation, our own journey. And this heroism may properly be called love. That's why I use the word other. That's why he used the word other, because it emphasizes that they are different. They are not us. They are not me. I've been sharing with people lately this idea of our children. And it's not me who came up with this idea. It's me who's beginning to realize it in my own life. But this idea that, that, that my children are not mine. Khalil Gibran and the prophet said, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. What I've been sharing with parents lately who are struggling with, with parenting tasks of kids that are struggling is your children are not yours. They, they belong to, if you have a belief in a higher power, they belong to your higher power. They belong to eternity. They belong to the universe. And that doesn't mean I don't care. That doesn't mean I don't love them. That doesn't mean I don't want to be around them. That's just respecting the sovereignty of who they are. Distinct and separate from me. And it helps me. It's almost a mantra I've been telling myself. It helps me to get clear on the relationship and what connection and intimacy is really all about. One of my favorite quotes about boundaries and, and about connection is this quote from an anonymous source that says, the first thing you should know about me is that I am not you. Everything else will make a lot more sense after that. Again, I share that quote in the context of parents who are parenting children that are not neurologically atypical. I share that with, with the, the broad population of parents that I work with. But its application is not only relevant here, but more important. It's very similar to folks who have adopted children. Many of the same issues with adopted children are present in non-adoptive families. But one thing that is unique about adopted families, similar to, to some blended families, but is, is unique to, to adopted children, is that neither of the parents share genetics with the child. So the child is more likely to process, to think, to, to, to formulate ideas to operate in the world differently than the parents, just by virtue of the fact that they come from a different genetic pool. Doesn't doesn't have to be true, but it often is true. And so when I talk to folks about adoption, my, my theory is attachment theory, right? Attachment theory is the, the, the study and understanding of how children, it's really child development in the context of, of parenting and families. How human beings are built brick by brick, board by board. And what attachment theory tells us is that every child, every child is different than the parents in some ways. And it's the parent's job 
to, to discover, to honor, to celebrate, and to welcome that difference. The reason that we use other, the reason that Gandhi uses, is to emphasize the, the idea of separateness within the connection that exists. One of the things I wanted to talk about today is testing. Sometimes people on the spectrum or with, with executive functioning issues or dyslexia, those things can be obvious. But people are masters at hiding those things. They are masters. One of the things that happens with neurodivergent children at times, folks that have executive functioning or ADHD or other differences in their, in their cognitive processing, is they will get themselves in trouble in academic settings, in mainstream settings. There's an incredibly high correlation between having learning differences and oppositional behavior in school. And of course, the genius of that is if I get in trouble for being the, the class clown or acting out, nobody will discover my limitations, my deficits, my learning disability. So one of the reasons why we encourage testing is not because we don't have a good feel for kids, but because testing will tell us things that we can't observe with the natural eye. You're adding objective measures, measures that have been normed on the broad population. And also projective measures, which are ones that don't have, uh, that aren't multiple choice. Things like the ink blot drawing or sentence completion. We, we, we add these objective and projective measures. We add them to our natural observations and they give us access to information that we, we can't see. Testing generalizes as well. You know, one of the things about neurodiversity, whether it be only in the last four years, have have my family, I've never shared this in this context. My wife and my four children all have been tested and identified as having ADHD. And I said, I've said many times since that, that cascade of information has come to, to us, I said, I wish I would have known about that 15 years ago. I would have had a different reaction to the, the basket of clothes that was set on the stairs. I would have had a different reaction to my children misplacing things that were mine that they borrowed. I, I would have done things to account for that difference. And I also would have felt it wasn't a willful defiance or disrespect. They process information differently. And again, like all differences, there's an upside and a downside to it. There's a creativity and a spontaneity. All four of my children are artists in their own ways. So the testing generalizes as well. It gives us a picture of somebody. It can help us know how to respond to them, how to help them with accommodations. And it also changes our emotional response to them. It helps differentiate and identify the proper and clear diagnosis in the ideal conditions. In wilderness therapy, it's fantastic because you're sober, you're getting good sleep, you're eating better, you're outside, so so you 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 have a psychologically speaking a sterile environment. Sterile meaning that it's clean and clear. Testing can help in other settings. You know, the, the, some of the research suggests that children who have ADHD experience 
20,000 more negative comments than children without ADHD during their school years. 20,000. Dozens during the day. Hundreds potentially during the week. So when we have this, this, this diagnosis, it doesn't put somebody in, in a box that they can't get out of. It lets them know, you know, this is what to be aware of. This is to watch what, what to watch out for. These are ways to accommodate. Testing sees things that the natural eye doesn't see. It, it helps us understand how people process issues, which is neurology, of course. It helps us understand IQ and learning differences, neurodiversity. It helps with some subtle underlying diagnoses. It helps to rule in and rule out certain diagnoses. And the question is, if you know, should you get your child tested? In my opinion, I still have testing from myself when I was in treatment as a 17-year-old. It gives you a snapshot of where the child is at at that time and can give you access to information you might not otherwise have. So speaking of the autism spectrum, it can, this includes autism, of course, low and high functioning, what used to be called Asperger's, nonverbal learning disability, Right is the, is the higher end of it. Pervasive developmental disorder, so so it, it it encompasses a few things. And the symptoms are again, with respect to the scatter plot that my son taught taught me about that I shared with you tonight. The the thing that's most apparent is the deficit in social communication and social interaction. It can look like, at times, an attachment disorder an inability to relate to people on a human empathic level. And of course, we can all imagine. We, we know what it's like when a sociopath or a narcissist doesn't have empathy. But do we apply that same kind of feeling and judgment to somebody if they're on the spectrum because they don't have empathy? Sometimes there is a hypersensitivity to emotions and feelings so that it becomes overwhelming for the person. A lot of people on the on the on the autism spectrum will tell you that there's a tremendous amount of anxiety because they're aware that they're not fitting in and they expend so much energy just to try to be and look normal to the outside world. So there can be a, a, a sensitivity. That's a differentiation within the autism spectrum disorder. And of course, there can be just a lack of awareness, a lack of responsiveness, a lack of feeling and connection to other people's emotions, emotional responses, and so forth. Having restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, or activities. Those are broadly the features. And again, this is one of the things that my, my family identified with me, is that I can get extraordinarily focused and detail-oriented and fact-driven. Common characteristics, of course, include, include social impairment. They do not process cues, subtleties, sarcasm, sometimes metaphor and idiom. They don't process because everything is very literal. They don't even have the same response to what you and I would consider humor. I shouldn't say what you and I would, would consider. What people that, that, that don't have these issues would consider humor. They'll have a narrow interest, which means they might not have interests and the same thing that you're interested in. One of the reasons why they're, they're attracted to screens and computers is because that is a controllable situation. 
they don't have to expend the same kind of emotional energy when they're communicating through screens that they do when they're communicating face to face. Less anxiety. Less a sense of overwhelm and out of control. There's a compulsive need for a routine, for predictability. Transitions are difficult. At times they can have limitations or speech with their speech or language. They might not be able to articulate or enunciate as well as others. They may slur their words or mumble a bit. Non-verbally, they struggle with communication because, again, they're not taking the same information that others are in and accounting for it. When I'm around people on the spectrum, one of the things I try to do is not use idioms and sarcasm and metaphor. I, I, you know, I, different people have that feature, but I try to be as matter of fact and efficient with my language as possible. And there can be gross motor skill delays, a lack of coordination, a lack of interest in physical activities. On the high functioning end, a developmental disorder that affects a child's ability to socialize and communicate effectively with others, a social awkwardness and an absorbing interest in specific topics. They share characteristics with the diagnosis of other developmental disorders. Symptoms include one-sided, long-winded conversations, unusual nonverbal communication, lack of eye contact, limited facial expressions, awkward body postures, obsession with subjects or parts of subjects, lack of empathy, lack of awareness of humor, narrow tone of voice, clumsiness, odd posture and rigid gait, commonly diagnosed as ADHD or oppositional defiant, while those with autism spectrum disorder can show the behaviors that meet the diagnostic criteria for these categories, the critical attention to social limitation is often missed entirely. Social failure and loneliness exacerbates a condition already fraught with limitations in coping. They can get overwhelmed in, in, in group and social contexts because they're, they're getting a, a lot of information that they're not processing. And there's, a, there's this sense that they're, that they're missing out that they're skipping. And again, they don't articulate themselves the way that I'm articulating it tonight. It's often articulated by behavioral responses that look willful and oppositional. It's not the exact same thing that happened to me in high school, but I dropped out of high school in large part due to my anxiety and perfectionism. Not because I wasn't capable, but I was overwhelmed with the, the idea that I had to live up to the potential that I, I was always told that I would have. And so instead of failing, and by failing, I mean coming up, not, not failing, I meant getting an A minus. That was failing according to the adults around me, the big people around me. Instead of trying and risking and coming up short, I decided to sink my own boat. There was less anxiety in being oppositional than there was in getting an A- minus or a B plus in something and, and being thought of internally as a failure because I, hadn't, I didn't live up to the potential that everybody told me that I had. In that way, folks on the spectrum will sink their own boat. Sometimes it's conscious, but oftentimes it's subconscious. I didn't know what I was doing at the time. 
It's only years later that I put it together and it's obvious to me now. A common thread running through autism spectrum disorder is social limitations. Students generally suffer more with organizational and executive functioning skills, processing more than social skills. So they don't know how to plan and execute tasks that have many consecutive parts to it. Students have attention issues, but not an incapability in to focus, rather difficulty in noticing what to attend to. One focused, once focused, they can sustain focus. It's one of the things I've noticed with people on the spectrum is that they they prioritize what I would say, and I don't mean this in a clinical sense, I mean this in a human everyday sense. They prioritize the wrong thing. They focus on a small part of the wrong thing. It's not really wrong, it's just not like me. So I call it wrong because that's what we do. Spatial and conceptual limitations. For example, capable of memorizing math facts and multiplication tables, but do not know the process of what multiplication is. It's just incredible to think about that difference. Students are usually more disorganized and consequently emotionally overwhelmed. Students would be more often described as quirky. One of the things that we're learning now that we have an awareness of, of autism and autism spectrum is that there are a lot of people that have been on the spectrum over the decades that we just thought we're, we're, we're nerds or we're quirky. That's what we called them. It's not appropriate, of course, but that's what we thought of them as. Likely to attempt to interact socially, have limited success and become vulnerable to this disorganization and lack of, of executive skills. For parents, like I said, the diagnosis is on a continuum, but, but maybe even more accurately, thinking about it in terms of a scatter plot. ASD is understood as a spectrum. It is best understood the broad traits rather than focusing on whether or not their child perfectly fits the diagnosis. How does the verbal IQ look? Performance, for example. It's one of the ways that they measure it, that they, that they parse it out. That's what I did with, my, with our son. I looked for examples because I didn't want it to be true. I looked for examples that didn't fit. In fact, it was, a, it was a funny story. I don't know if you'll think it's funny, but we laugh at me about it now. When my, when my child was 17, he, he talks about my, my son is transgender. And he says, it wasn't hard to come out to you guys as transgender, but it was hard to come out to you as, as autistic is what he says. And when we talked about it in therapy, when he was 16 or 17, he mentioned that, that this idea that he was on the spectrum and our response was, yeah, of course. And he was flabbergasted by the, our response. Cause he's like, you've denied it this whole time. But in that context, it just, it hit me. Of course it was. But part of my anger and frustration at him over the years, which of course caused anxiety and esteem issues was due to the fact that he was processing information differently than, than I do. Working memory is often lower. They cannot retain things from moment to moment. Like I said, there's a large split between verbal and performance. My son academically is in the 99.9th percentile academically but he struggles in other areas or he's, he's limited 
in other areas. The brain operates more by rules than by intuition, by schemas. It's like the difference between a way that, that a computer understands and processes information in the way that a person does. It's tough to apply hard and fast rules to relationships and emotional information. This also explains why some kids often excel in childhood and then fall apart in adolescence as social relationships become more com complicated. Why does wilderness therapy, how is it effective? It's very structured. It's, it's, it's in vivo social skills training. That's one of the, the, the ideas with working with folks on the spectrum is to teach and train them about even something as uh, that we take for granted so much, something like facial expressions, like tone of voice. We can create safe enactments and experiences free of scapegoating. It's one of the things that we look at because folks that are neurodiverse can get easily scapegoated, easily scapegoated, often scapegoated. So we have to be especially vigilant about that in small group settings like wilderness therapy. In wilderness therapy, there's a limited range of activities or exposure to stimulus, to stimuli, and you can practice it in that safe context, that safe, predictable context. We have a high ratio of students to staff. Two to one is typically what we shoot for. Maybe 2.3 to one is what we shoot for so that they can get a lot of individualized attention. One of the things that's difficult about wilderness therapy actually is that it is so... See, people don't understand this. Wilderness therapy is so structured and supportive that it's easier in many ways for kids than mainstream school or mainstream society. I think people focus on the physical challenges, the, the hardships and the creature comforts, aspects of wilderness the therapy to describe it as more difficult. But my experience has been, especially with kids that struggle with some of these deficits, my experience has been that in many ways it's easier for them. It's predictable. Therapy first. Therapy last. Everything else comes second. And in the real world, it doesn't work that way. If you get pulled over for, for speeding, the police officer doesn't want to have a discussion about feelings. If you're in a classroom with one teacher and 28 students or 35 students, the teacher won't have that, that much time to help an individual student. So the high ratio is helpful. The positive peer culture, of course, that we can encourage and enforce. I feel statements. The communication around feelings is a great training for folks on the spectrum. And like I said, therapy is first and last. The special challenges is that peer relationships are exposed. They get exposed. In a group setting where everybody relies on each other, in wellness therapy, they get exposed. And that happens in classrooms. You know... I learned this in graduate school. In fact, undergrad, I actually learned it. A study that said that one of the difficulties of parents who put children in daycare is that at the end of the day, if the parents work, if both parents work, or it's a single parent, if he or she works, the parent wants what they would describe as quality time with their child. But the child has been in a setting where compliance and cooperation is overvalued and overemphasized. Doesn't that make sense? 
if you're in daycare, even if the ratios are, are, are fairly decent, say one to six, one to eight, there still is going to be an overemphasis on cooperation. So one of the things that they taught us in terms of child development, this was a child development course, is if you happen to be in a situation where your child is in daycare for whatever reason, quality time with them at the end of the day might look like them practicing oppositionality, finding their voice. Of course, the greatest challenge with that is if you've been at work all day, if you've been working all day, you're low on energy. And so you want cooperation. And then you come together at what some therapists have called the witching hour, where everybody's needs are in conflict. But just even being aware of that can be helpful. Executive functioning and planning, being able to see. Sometimes the folks on the spectrum disorder um, look oppositional because they don't, um, they're not able to, to see the future, see consequences plan for things so to make choices that that seem or are impulsive just like a child who's who's being uh, who's being oppositional for for some other reason emotionally nonverbal processing deficits which i've mentioned self-care can be very challenging it's part of executive functioning it needs to be a part of the treatment plan self-care needs to be a part of the treatment plan high basic hygiene Transitions are difficult, again, because the, the, the this, this autism spectrum disorder is something where regularity, predictability, structure, sameness is valued. So transitions can be especially emotionally taxing. Sensory integration issues like food, clothing, touch, noise can be overwhelming for them. And again, because the continuum goes from the highest of functioning to the lowest of functioning, sometimes on the lower end, those sensory integration issues can be incredibly stressful for folks on the, on the spectrum. Like I said, communication difficulties, making jokes, sar- uh, harmless sarcasms, teasing, often are misinterpreted. Is very, very literal and can cause great distress for folks on the spectrum. So what are some strategies? You utilize effective learning theory principles. We talk about that on our program. We hired an educator a few years ago who talked about universal design. Not, not finding something that works for everybody. Instead of maybe writing a letter, maybe it's a picture, maybe it's an oral presentation. Rewarding successive approximations. I love rewarding successive approximations. It's one of my favorite things, not just with people on the spectrum, but with everybody. And what that means is you're rewarding small steps toward the goal. One of the reasons why I really bristle at some of the critiques about the way that we treat our young children around sports by giving them a participation trophy is because that is a behavioral a positive behavioral technique of rewarding a success of approximations. Now, eventually, eventually, later on, participation trophies aren't developmentally appropriate. But early on, when you're trying to entice young children, giving them a plaque to give it a try is a completely appropriate technique or approach. 
fading and extinction, which means not reinforcing behaviors inadvertently through negative attention. Set them up for success with accommodations. Find ways to take advantage of their strengths. Find ways to work around their limitations that don't work in mainstream settings. Find things that the student can be important to the group. One of the things my, my son loves being around the house is because we, we include him in so many discussions because he has so much information. He kind of likes the, the role of being the human Google, gets a kick out of it. When he was home last summer, I knew he was moving to college for good. Not He won't be coming home for the summer this year for the first time. And I remember we were having some incredible discussions uh, around literature. He was the one that encouraged me and really prepped me to read the Iliad and the Odyssey again. And, and he taught me like a teacher would, a professor would, because he retains the information like it was yesterday, what I would be reading, what I would be learning. I would come to him with questions. I found ways to celebrate. That's the thing I miss about him most is we have these incredible intellectual conversations, especially around, for him, around um, comics and anime and story. And Joseph Campbell, he actually goes to the school where Joseph Campbell taught for many, many years. Lots of positive reinforcement. I mean, I think that's good for everybody. But positive reinforcement. Be patient. Part of what I hope from tonight, just in all of the work that I do, is that we can all increase in patience naturally by understanding the differences. Choose your battles. The power struggle. The attempt to fit square pegs in round holes. One of the things that my daughter says that she does with her ADHD is she creates situations around tasks that make it uncomfortable unless she resolves it. And I've actually taken that to heart. If I give her something, she comes over and I say, make sure you take this, this, this picture home that's been sitting on the desk for weeks. She said, I'm going to have to wrap it up in my purse, in the, the strap of my purse. Because I will just naturally later, even if I set my purse on it, I'll naturally just grab my purse later and walk away and won't even see it. So she creates ways to accommodate. Manage, manage the countertransference of everyone and learn to see through this, learn to see it through the spectrum lenses. That's really what I'm talking about tonight. Is educating students and staff thoroughly. If if teachers or, or staff or, or therapists aren't educated to a basic extent, I don't consider myself an expert on neurodiversity by any means. But if we don't have a basic understanding, even a curiosity that maybe there might be something going on cognitively here that's, that's a barrier for this child. Just because I can do it, just because I prefer writing, just because I prefer oral communication, doesn't mean that it works for everybody. I'll go over a few things. Specific intervention strategies to help with special challenges. Peer relations. Hold group members to high standards of emotional safety to prevent scapegoating. Provide opportunities for special attention. Give them a role that fits. Use role modeling and behavior rehearsal. Exclude from the group times if they're problematic. Give them an out. With executive functioning, break down tasks to short-term goals. Break them up into several parts and take them one at a time. Prompt them ahead of time about a group or a group topic 
or question that might be asked. Help them make lists. Encourage them to make lists. Use positive correction techniques and encouraging. Encouraging the successful approximations toward the goal. Use the buddy system. Pair them up with somebody who has different strengths and also patience. Include making times, keeping up with your stuff and time management as a part of the treatment plan. Emotional regulation. Use feelings, lists, and charts. It's very important. Use and teach I feel statements. Allow students to take self-imposed timeouts. Really important. Remember the successful approximation concept. Don't be surprised if a student if a student suddenly gets over something without processing it. Use intellectual approach to solving problems, logical, rational problem solving. For nonverbal processing deficits, provide instructions verbally, orally, verbally, even in the written form. Have students reflect instructions frequently. Have students observe various activities and write down steps. Use other models of teaching, for example, kinesthetic physical, role modeling. Make self-care part of the treatment plan. It's a very common thing. And in and, and wilderness therapy, it's critical, just like it is in other settings that are, that are outdoor. If you don't, we don't allow children to, to get into a situation where they're going to experience harm to their bodies just because they're incapable of doing it. In the winter, we don't let them get frostbite because they lose their gloves. We check their feet twice a day, their capillary refill. We check their hygiene, brushing their teeth, drinking enough water, bathing, and taking care of themselves. Make that all a part of the treatment plan. It as, it as, it's as re- relevant and important as anything that's much more de- deeply psychologically interesting for a lot of people. And of course, provide super, increased supervision. For transitions, engage the idea of why it's important to learn to hit a curveball. Don't expect profession to allow for some healthy emotional expression. Give them some heads up ahead of time. With sensory integration issues, be aware that loud noises, large amounts of visual stimulation, or even small amounts of tactile can be very aversive and overwhelming. Don't discount. That's one of my great regrets with my son. Because I was unwilling to see what was in front of me because of my own emotional limitations, I discounted some of his, what I would have called at the time, excuses. Same with the ADHD and my other the kids in my family. Choose your battles, especially regarding food. In terms of abstraction, be concrete. Be careful around, like I said, metaphor and storytelling and idioms. Teach them what they mean. Wilderness is an effective treatment milieu. The merging of social and therapy provides the community for regular and meaningful peer feedback about their relationships in the moments. This is the kind of feedback few people get in their regular social world. Regular feedback and teaching about social relationships helps these kids build their rule book and develop more sophisticated understanding of how to engage relationships. Our autism spectrum disorder kids often talk about creating something like a library of experiences. They create tons of if-then situations and tag them with worked well or worked bad. You see how logical that is? Then they reference this library in new situations and make their best guess about how to proceed. Wilderness provides the opportunity to really build up the library. Therapy will not change the way the brain works, but it can help somebody on the spectrum 
understand how their brain works. Understanding both deficits and strengths will allow them to be more effective in managing the world. These are some comments from some of our therapists who specialize. Treatment at evoke therapy programs, both groups suffer from social rejection, isolation, and resulting shame. While the entire autism spectrum group struggles, the lower functioning group suffers greatly and can present emotionally like an attachment disorder. I misdiagnosed children in my early career with attachment disorders who were on the spectrum in many cases. Evoke becomes a place that can provide near constant emotional safety for the first time in years for some. Cycles of peer rejection and isolation are interrupted. Students are supported and resources previously designated for defense become available for development. Emotional safety is critical in order for this group of students to become more open, aware, and willing to develop improved skills. Once emotional safety is achieved, then progress in basic social skills, empathy, and emotional awareness and expression begins to move forward. They need Evoke more than anybody, in my opinion. This is because they are so reliant on emotional safety. Evoke is a place where traditional social cycles, which have been so, so often, have led these kids to shame, are interrupted, then replaced by assertiveness and eventually competence. So what we're trying to do is build competency through an experience. Give them a schema and relationship practice within a small context. One of the most difficult things in developmental theory, in psychological development, is when we are younger, the world is relatively small. When we get older, the world becomes larger and larger and larger. And so issues like, like trust, like intimacy, like communication, become more complex and sophisticated. And wilderness therapy is a way of shrinking the, the big universe down again for some practice and teaching and lessons. Managing countertransference means our frustration at the otherness of our children is a small t trauma for them. For self-care, especially in the model that we use in wilderness therapy, practicing self-care is critically important. Teaching it, reinforcing it, rewarding it. Slow, small groups slow down the process. And then, of course, learning accommodation, finding the line between accommodating and disempowering. What are the take-homes? Well, autism spectrum disorder is considered a, a neurological difference. It's not a show of simple opposition, nor the result of poor parenting. You know, for a lot of parents, I wasn't going to, I thought about this just a minute ago. I think for a lot of us who have children on the spectrum, just like a lot of other things, there's grief. So one of the recommendations I'm going to make tonight and part of this take home is find other people, find groups, find other people with children on the spectrum or spouses on the spectrum or family members on the spectrum that understand you and your challenges. Somebody that's willing to let you unload the emotional distress that you might feel. Children with autism spectrum disorder usually have strong verbal skills but are more literal and concrete in their processing. These children are usually rigid and reactive in their processing of information and struggle to generalize life experiences into meaningful contexts. Their concrete processing and reactive responses leave them with a natural target of bullying and rejection for peers. Treatment of the autism spectrum disorder requires a unique balance of patience, delivery of clear and constant interpersonal boundaries, 
some behavioral modification and the ability to connect emotionally with those with whom it can be most difficult to connect. Really powerful. Willer's therapy has become a powerful and effective way to help teens with ASD to begin to experience the success that they desperately need. With therapists and staff, they have education and experience in working with this special population. Willer's therapy is naturally effective. It's very structured. It provides clear, consistent expectations that when learned, provide these individuals with a sense of control and competence. The staff to student ratio is high, providing the much needed individual attention. There is much attention given to the peer culture of the group, ensuring a positive environment with a high level of emotional safety. Each student is accepted for himself or herself, no matter how quirky. You know, historically, people have come to me and to say, you know, a lot of this doesn't apply to me because my child is on the spectrum. And if anything, I want to communicate tonight. It's of course, there are differences. If your child sub struggles with substance abuse disorder or anxiety, acting in depression, eating disorders, game or technology addiction, autism spectrum, there are definitely differences. But there's also some similarities. That opening quote about otherness, projection, fusion, going home is easy. Loving another's otherness is heroic. So yes, it's different in some ways. But part of the reason that they, no matter what facility you go to in the world, for, for the family week, for the family weekend, if your child is struggling or your loved one is struggling with an addiction, they're going to teach you the neuroscience. And the reason they teach the neuroscience is because it increases empathy. Not everybody's starting at the starting gate that you are. Not everybody has the same neurology and thinks the same way. 12-step meetings. There's a typo there. I apologize. Folks will often say, well, I don't want to go to Al-Anon or CODA because my child's not doesn't have a substance abuse disorder, but you've got to listen deeper. You've got to listen beyond the superficial to the otherness. Yes, there are differences between a child who's refusing to go to school because of anxiety and neurodiversity compared to a child who's, who's skipping school because they're getting high with their friends. There are differences there. But eventually we're going to know so much about the brain. We're going to know so much about the brain that we will see that everybody's not starting from the same starting point. And all that will give us is empathy and understanding and patience. Like I said earlier, get support. Somewhere where people understand you and maybe most importantly, they're willing to listen to you unload your feelings because these are challenging. I hope that was helpful. I'm going to go to our upcoming announcements. If you have any questions, I can cover them on my next broadcast next Tuesday. My two books, The Journey of the Heroic Parent and The Audacity to Be You, are available on Amazon and Audible. If you want to do a deep dive into your own work, June is our next opportunity. June 21st through 25th is that offering. I cannot endorse that enough. If you want to know my opinion after 30 years, and I've done over seven myself as a participant paying full price, if you want to know the best thing you can do for your child, my generic answer would be finding you. 
June 21st through 25th is that offering. We also do it online. We started during the pandemic and we found it to be so effective that we continued it. It's, it's, it's half the time online and about a third of the cost and you don't have to travel and it goes over a weekend. So you don't have to miss work. So if time and money are, are, are resources that are at a premium for you, the online option is a very effective option. If you've been to a Finding You, we have a returning to you, which is October 11th through 15th. I'm going to be running a Finding You weekend in the UK on June 23rd through 25th. There's a waiting list for that, and some people might drop out. So check that out if you're in the UK or going to be visiting at that time. If you want a custom Finding Connection, that's for couples or, 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 or for parents, or a Finding Family custom, customized for your family, contact intensives at evoketherapy.com. We have support groups for alumni and current families. The next offering is June 1st at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. Once a month, we have an alumni-only meeting. The next offering for that is June 27th at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. And then we have an intensive support group every month. June 13th at 6 p.m. is the offering for that. Contact Sarah D at evoketherapy.com or visit evoketherapy.com slash family involvement for more information. We have coaches that will work with you virtually. Couples, parents, individuals, families. These are folks that have worked in the field who are trained in the attachment-based model that I talk about. They can help with clarifying boundaries, couples, couples and intimacy issues, codependency-related issues, navigating transitions back home, LGBTQ plus support and guidance, even helping with, with your child that might be on the spectrum or if you're on the spectrum. Coaching at evoketherapy.com is the contact for that. We encourage all current family members to try out, just try out six of any of the following 12-step support groups, alanon.org, coda.org, familiesanonymous.org, or adultchildren.org. Also, refugerecovery.org or nami.org, nami.org, have free classes and resources in your area. I want to say something about this. I love it. In the book Addictive Thinking by Abraham Tversky, he says, that people avoid doing their own work on codependency for the exact same reasons that people avoid doing their work on addiction. What they say is, it doesn't apply to me. These people are different than me. My problems aren't the same as they, they have. I don't need it. I can do it on my own. So what I've said in, in years past, and I haven't said in a long time, one of the reasons why I would like you to go to a 12-step support group and to try it out is you'll have empathy for what it feels like for your child to walk into a group of strangers and experience the intrinsic vulnerability of being there to work on your stuff. We ask you to go to six 12-step support groups. All of these broadcasts are available on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. Just search Finding You in Evoke Therapy Podcast. Like and subscribe there. And announcements for every new broadcast will pop up on your device. Or you can go to soundcloud.com on your computer and find us there. You can also find these broadcasts on Evoke's YouTube channel with the video and the slides that I use. You can find Evoke Therapy programs and me, Dr. Brad Reedy, on Twitter and Amazon, or excuse me, and Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy and at Dr. Brad Reedy, respectively. You can also find Evoke Therapy Intensives on Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy Intensives. On Facebook, you can find us by searching Evoke Therapy Programs or Evoke Therapy Intensives. And the Evoke Therapy blog has new content each week. If you want to give back to people who can't afford treatment, our three charitable partners include 
choosementhealth.org, skyesthelimitfund.org, or evokefamilyfoundation.org. You can earmark your donations, which are tax deductible. You can earmark them for a specific population that touches your heart that you feel close to, or even for a specific program if you'd like to. My next broadcast will be May 30th, 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. I believe that's Tuesday. 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time, I'll be taking a Q&A. You can always ask questions in between by emailing webinar at evoketherapy.com. You can give feedback, make suggestions. If you want copies of slides of any of our broadcasts, you can email us there. That's the way to get a hold of us. And then on June 1st, I'm going to be talking about abandonment, which I don't think I've ever talked about on these broadcasts. I talk about intrusive or abusive parenting styles or techniques, but I often don't talk about abandonment. So anyway, folks, I hope this has been helpful for you. I hope this is a helpful point of contact for you during the week. And for and on behalf of the people that love you and the people that love that you love, thanks for showing up tonight and being willing to do your work and listening to, to us on the podcast. Have a great evening and I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.